Section 16 of Gallipoli Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Gallipoli Diary by John Graham Gillum. Section 16. August 30th to September 17th, 1915. August 30th. A beautiful day again. Turkish batteries very busy all day. Shrapnel and high explosive shell, and also dueling between fleet and land batteries. Otherwise all quiet, nothing doing. Brigade moves down from trenches to A Beach West, and news that we are to go to Imbros for a rest is circulated. Enemy airplane swoops over like an evil-looking vulture and tries to drop bombs on fleet, but has no direct hit to record. At nightfall, brigade starts to embark, ready to sail at daylight. Officers have cabins, and so I am enabled to have a sleep. Am suffering from one of my beastly colds, however. Nice to get away after the disappointments of that worst of all months, August, when we had expected so much. August 31st. Arrive at Imbros at 8 a.m., and brigade proceeds to camp on the lowland by the sea, I mess with the general and staff, and again parcels arrive opportunely with masterpieces of cakes and sweets, which are seized by the mess waiter and daintily served up at table. Oh, the relief to get away from shell fire and the chill atmosphere of death in its crudest form. September 1st. Start off with my man Lewington on donkeys and a pack pony across the hills, over a stony, narrow path with three little boys in charge of the animals. The way is sometimes over and sometimes round a line of irregular, conical-shaped hills, some almost mountains, covered with thick green gorse, large boulders, rocks, and small stones. The few valleys are beautifully wooded and dotted with vineyards growing luscious dark grapes and also groves of fig trees. One gets glimpses of the blue Aegean now and again, and the distant isthmus of Gallipoli, and the island of Samothrace, with the coast of Bulgaria still further off. After two hours' trek, during which I felt as if I was a character in the scriptures, we sighted the village of Panagia, and we had a sporting trot down a narrow, sandy, steep path. One little boy on a donkey who joined us raced me and beat me by a short neck, Poor old Lewington was hanging on to his moke with a pained but polite expression on his face, and heaved a sigh of relief when we arrived at the village. We pulled up at the Grand Britannia Hotel, recently so named by a Greek. It is a little broken-down house, having on the ground floor a boot shop, and on the first and top floor two small bare rooms. After a meal of partridge, omelets, and honey, with German beer to drink, I am taken out to an empty house and shown to a room furnished only with a bench. My man slept on the landing and I in the room, and I soon fell fast asleep. At midnight I am awakened by certain creepy insects. I light candles and awake my man, and we conduct a massacre. Our landlord arrives on the scene much disturbed and places my bed in the center of the room whereupon I turn in again and sleep peacefully for the rest of the night. 
September 2nd. Awaken the morning with the sun streaming in and with the sounds of cocks crowing and chickens clucking. Looking out, the view of the conical, beautiful hills makes me almost catch my breath. And, God bless my soul, a Greek peasant maiden, beauteous to look upon and fair of complexion, is feeding her pigs and chickens. After breakfast at the Grand Britannia Hotel, sounds like the Ritz London, doesn't it? Duff, of all people, rolls up with Monroe. We all lunch together and then roam around the village, buy a few things, and take photographs. After tea, Duff goes on to Castra by the sea on the other side of the island, and Monroe and I go back to camp. It is beautiful riding back through the hills in the late afternoon. Perfect day and coloring gorgeous. Nearing camp, we get a fine view of Gallipoli. All is so peaceful where we are, but just over that narrow strip of sea, war rules in its most horrible form. Have dinner with Cox of the Essex, who turns in at 8.30, and I go back to headquarters and have an after-dinner smoke with the general and staff, sitting round a little table in the marquee, lit by candlelight. September 3rd. Start off with Phillips on a donkey and pony, respectively, over the hills again, a gorgeous morning, and it is good to be alive. Peasants give us delightful grapes as we ride along. Sheep are grazing, their bells tinkling, with a few cows and bullocks, and now and again a covey of partridges rises. Arriving at Panagia, we have a bottle of beer, and then go along the road to Castra by the sea. Castra is situated on a high hill overlooking the sea, with a few fishermen's huts on the beach. The Isle of Samothrace, which is a cluster of mountains rising sheer from the sea, lies opposite. The sea is dead calm and of a gorgeous blue. A few fishing boats lie in a tiny little harbor on the right of the little bay, which is flanked by hills. In the background are more hills and low wooded valleys, and we feel as if we had stepped into the Garden of Eden. Duff is here and we have lunch after which Duff returns to camp. Phillips and I go up on the cliff and have a delightful sleep. Everything is dead quiet, and there is not a cloud in the sky. We are right away from the world, and the scene before us, that of the blue Aegean with Samothrace a few miles away, has not changed for thousands of years. After tea we have a bathe in beautifully clear warm water and no rocks. The evening closes in, and the coloring thrown by the declining sun on Samothrace is beautiful. A boat with a square sail comes sailing home, looking like the return of Ulysses. After dinner we turn in and sleep on the floor of the veranda. September 4th. Wake up early. A perfect morning, but a high wind. Scene beautiful. Talk to an old Greek who has been all over the world and in all the ports of England, and who has come home to his native island for the rest of his days. Try fishing, but catch nothing. After lunch, start back to camp on ponies, stopping at Panagia for tea, arriving home at 6.30. September 5th. Start off again for Panagia with Duff and Elliot, and have lunch there. After lunch, we go off to another village where an annual holiday is being held. Bands are playing, and the inhabitants are dancing weird native dances, 
appearing very solemn about it. Parties are going round from house to house, visiting and partaking of refreshment, such as grapes, figs, wine, and liqueurs. An old Greek invites us in, and his wife forces us to have grapes, melon, jelly, and liqueurs. I take a bite of cake and was nearly violently ill. We came back another way through vineyards where grapes can be had for the asking, olive groves, and fig tree orchards. September 6th, a fine day again but windy. No news but a rumor that Bulgaria is in against us now and that we shall be in Gallipoli for the winter. We go back tomorrow night. We get up a concert, which takes place in the evening. We rig up a platform, borrow a piano from the YMCA, and make up a program. I snaffle some champagne for headquarters, and after a cheery dinner we go to the concert. We have some excellent talent, and everybody thoroughly enjoys it. It is a sight worth seeing, the platform lit by candles, and the brigade seated around on the sand. Some of those who took part in the landing, some recently in the fighting at Suvla, and new drafts who have not yet tasted war. The defense of Lucknow was recited by Lieutenant Butler of the Worcesters, an actor by profession, and a good fellow, and it went splendidly and gripped us all. New Brigade Major arrives, Wilson of the Royal Fusiliers. September 7th. Awake at five, and on becoming conscious of the fact that today I have to go back to the peninsula to remain there for Lord knows how long, I have the same depressed feeling, only more so, that one has in the days of school on the last day of the holiday. At 6 a.m., Phillips and I and the supply section embark, and on a tossing trawler, bucking about like a wild horse, we undergo the misery of a four hours crossing in a very rough sea to Suvla Bay, where we arrive at 10 a.m. We lie off the Swiftsure for an hour, and then two pinnaces come alongside to take us on shore. Shrapnel is bursting steadily over the lowlands and one or two high explosives are now and again bursting on A Beach and W Beach. We land soon after 11 a.m., and on arrival back at our part of the promontory, we find that our camp has been moved to the end of the long gully, where, on the side of a hill, division headquarters are dug in. The contours of the country are curious. Great natural scars run down to a flat plateau washed by the waves. In these gullies, hundreds of men and animals are getting what protection they can. The engineers are building a road on one side of which is a row of dugouts, artfully hidden by a row of great boulders. This is our advanced horse transport depot, and a pretty hot shop, as the Turks have the exact range. In front of the dugouts are the horse lines, where rows and rows of mules and horses are packed into the throat of the gorge for shelter. A dry watercourse winds down the gorge, so the place will be impossible in winter. As it is, death takes his daily toll of men and animals, while down the path come a never-ending procession of sick and wounded from the front line, and very occasionally a prisoner or two. Up the same path at night, the reinforcements march to rest in dugouts just behind the line until their turn to take over arrives. 
To the left of the gorge a huge rocky point runs out to the sea. This point also is a thick mass of men and animals, practically in the open, so limited is space. Truly an unfriendly and uninviting country. The hot dust is over everything. The flies torment, and shells take their toll of us, while we are powerless to hit back. The mouth of the gorge widens to the beach, where there are three tiny bays, which with the plateau form a beach, Kangaroo Beach, with its lighter and pontoon quays, its sandbag dugouts, and the like. West Beach, the main landing place, with rather better piers and offices, and Little West Beach, a sort of overflow to West Beach proper, embellished with a tram line for horse-drawn trucks, the Ordnance Depot, etc. All these places are swarming with men, and over all hangs the eternal dust. Further along on the plateau from West Beach, and looking towards Lalababa, is the supply depot and the watering places for the animals, all in the open, with no protection at all, a wonderful spectacle if you like to think of it, and only possible because John Turk is short of ammunition. Here in the bare open the troops live from day to day, a few sandbags only between them and death, and very few of the dugouts boast a real roof. Blankets and waterproof sheets answer that purpose, and so it is not difficult to imagine the havoc wrought when shrapnel is about. To the north lies the bold, forbidding point before mentioned, with the waves flinging their white manes in anger against its sides. Such, roughly, is Suvla Bay as I see it now, and I cannot say that it impresses me as a practical proposition. Dug in on the side of a slope, the others have built a house, or, as far as dugouts in Gallipoli go, a summer residence. The door faces the rise leading up to the rugged point, from the craggy back of which one sees the cliffside dropping sheer to the sea. The roof of corrugated iron slopes at the same angle as the slope of the ground in which we have dug. For walls, the dugout earth forms the back wall, and the side walls are built of biscuit boxes. We spend the day improving on this. Immediately in front is our supply depot, divided into three dumps, one each for the 86th, 87th, and 88th brigades. At dusk, the pack mules and army transport carts form up, and we load onto the set of mules or carts allotted to each unit the rations and fuel. The transport then moves off by brigades to the front, the mules led by drabbies, the carts driven also by drabbies, and the whole escorted by Indian non-commissioned officers under a white non-commissioned officer. Quartermaster sergeants, transport non-commissioned officers, guides of the units, and the Army Service Corps transport officer accompany them to the respective battalion and dumps situated a distance of 200 to 300 yards behind the front line. In some cases, convoys proceed direct to the regimental cookhouses. The transport dares not show itself by day. Tonight our brigade arrives from Imbros and is to spend the night in Delisle's Gully, some short distance to the left of the road that leads to Lone Tree Gully, but up the hill rather, and so our rations go there. Water has been put there for them by Carver last night. 
We watch this water question closely. It needs careful handling and foresight. A man can go hungry much longer than he can go thirsty, and water is far more difficult to transport by sea than food. Imbros is the source of our supply, and water tank lighters are filled there and towed over each day. The water dump is on A Beach, and all the divisions that are being supplied from this promontory draw from this dump. An able man, one Private Jones, is in charge. Though before the war, a London County Council schoolteacher, he appears to be the one man in the world who could be chosen to be the most efficient and tactful organizer of the difficult task of satisfying an army of 30,000 men with their daily requirements of water from a limited source and by means of a limited supply of receptacles steadily diminishing in number. At seven I go up with Carver to the headquarters of the 86th Brigade. Instead of walking up the road that leads to Pine Tree Gully, we bear off to the right and pass along a lower road through the wooded, gorse-covered lowlands for a distance of about a mile and a half inland until bullets are merrily singing their song of war overhead. Zip! One goes between us. A pause in the conversation, and Carver says, That was not pleasant. To which I agree, but adding, If hit, it means blighty, my boy, the Savoy and theaters, or finish, as we say in Egypt. We come to a wide space in front of us, and to our left is high ground, rising in one place to about thirty feet. Carver tells me that we are at brigade dumping ground. Army transport carts are packed here in readiness to bring the baggage back to the beach for the 86th Brigade, as it is their turn now to go to Imbros. He searches for his staff captain in the dark, and I go up to the bushes in front and talk to Baxter, the quartermaster of the Munsters, and a few other officers who are sitting down on a rock. As I stand there, I hear close to my ear, zip, an unseen hand appears to strike a bush with a big stick on my left. Baxter says, You are standing in a place where bullets keep dropping. You should sit down. One just passed your head. I am always sensitive as to how to behave on these occasions with men whose lives are always passed in the trenches. And so I reply, Did it? I heard the thing plain enough and sat down promptly. I have learned to take my cue as to what to do from such men, and they are always right. Many a man has been hit by totally disregarding the necessity of taking cover, believing that others may think he has cold feet, and he wishes to prove that he is brave by bravado. He forgets he is more useful to his country alive. There are many times when he must take risk, so it is wiser for him to reserve his bravado for those times. I sit down, and a minute after, zip! again, and thud into the bush. Baxter tells me that it is only this corner which is dangerous, but that they are sitting there because it is a nice seat and the only one handy for waiting. If you walk about the rest of the space, the bullets are flying high and one is safe. This happens all over the peninsula, owing to the curious formation of the land. At one area of a certain spot, bullets may hit the ground regularly, on or near that part, while a few yards away they fly high. Soon one becomes familiar with this peculiarity and acts accordingly. It is because some Turks may be on a rise, 
others on the ground. They generally fire at nothing in particular, but straight in front of them. All night they fire away, crack, 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 and must waste a lot of ammunition. Carter, having finished his arrangements, calls me, and we walk back a short distance over a small rise, threading our way along a path no doubt used not long since by Turkish farmers. Descending a slope, we pass to the right by a little hill, not more than thirty feet high, and make towards a light, which is 86th Brigade Headquarters. We are walking up to the door, and can see General Percival and Thompson sitting in the mess-room dugout. When we are four yards away from them, the general says, Good evening, Carver. When Carver, to my astonishment, using a fearful oath, disappears into the earth. The light from headquarters mess dazzles my eyes somewhat, and I stop dead, still looking at the place where Carver had performed his pantomimic vanishing trick, when he again appears looking foolish. He had neatly stepped into a dugout, which I found out after was waiting to be filled in, and we had not noticed it on account of the light in our eyes. We go in and chat, and I tell them of the joys and beauty which they are to taste and see on Imbros. Back to the beach, where I find our staff captain Haddow arrived. The brigade is arriving, hundreds of dark, shadowy figures quietly falling in in platoons and marching off inland. I talk to Mould a while about the eternal topic, water, and then turn in. September 8th. Tonight I go up to brigade, this time a different way across country, following a guide who has been down for rations and tells me he knows a quick way. We pass in and out of boulders and clumps of gorse, down the rocky gully where division headquarters were for a few nights, past clumps of trees, over grass, over an open space with more pinging bullets than ever, at last to headquarters, and find them all sitting in darkness, and the general rather anxious about the non-arrival of two of his battalions, who have missed their way and are having a country night ramble all over the place, groping about in the dark. Coming back, I pass the Hampshires, and an officer asking me the way, I direct him to headquarters. September 14th. The past days since I last entered up my diary have been so monotonous that in a fit of sulkiness I threw it on one side, saying I would not record another day's events for nothing happens. The monotony knocks Hellas sideways. I go up every morning to division headquarters at the top of our gully to take instructions. I see the main supply depot to arrange drawing the day's supplies. I wire the strength of the division to general headquarters. I read papers three to four weeks old. I answer letters of the same age. Some days I go up the slope opposite our bivouac and climbing down the cliff on the other side, have a topping bathe. I strafe flies by the thousand. They are a damnable pest. I watch the battleships popping away, and at odd times have to duck from a Turkish shell. At dusk I superintend the loading up of rations and water, and go up to brigade headquarters for a chat. The atmosphere of their company, however, always bucks me up. Our guns pop off at odd intervals each day, and ammunition appears to be coming more plentiful. The Turks are continually busy with shrapnel over Chocolate Hill and the lowland, 
especially at Hill 10, where we have several batteries, and now and again the beaches. Sea Beach, on the other side of Lalababa, over the bay, however, gets it far worse than we do. However, generally speaking, I do not think the Turk fires as much as we do. Well, I will continue the diary. Things cannot go on like this forever, and the best thing to do is to accept the life as it comes and treat everything as a matter of course, even shells. All of us who have been on here any length of time feel that our time to get hit will eventually arrive. Personally, I prefer the sledgehammer blow from the unseen hand, namely, a bullet from a rifle. I have been feeling very seedy the last few days, with the common complaint that men are going sick fast with now. I went up to the brigade tonight, but felt very ill when there, and was glad to swallow a strong brandy which the general offered to me. Coming back over the gorse, bullets seemed freer than usual, thudding into the bushes on my right and left. I felt sick and faint, and sat down, awaiting for an empty mule cart returning on its way to the beach. One soon came, with two men of the Essex, and I was thankful for the lift home. Puka, original twenty-ninth men of the Essex, and good fellows. About a dozen motor lorries have landed, and I have managed to snaffle four of them to draw supplies from the main supply depot to our divisional depot, both now at this end of the promontory. Transport at this end of the promontory, if not too congested, only gets shelled at very rare intervals during the day, not sufficient to stop its work. Motor lorries make the time that we take in drawing much shorter, and I wonder that they were not at Hellas. Before, we used Army transport carts for this drawing here, and it took up practically the whole morning. We do not have such good targets as the Turks have. To them, we are laid out as a panorama, and to us, they are dug in out of sight on the slopes of rocky, almost impregnable fastnesses. Today we have heard the boom of guns from the south, and there must be a heavy bombardment going on there. The weather has broken, and we get a strong wind blowing each day now, frequently developing into a gale. A cold wind is now and again thrown in, and at nights we get a little rain. It is very rough, and difficulty is being experienced in landing stuff. Told that good news will be published tonight. September 15th. Heavy rain before breakfast this morning. Clears off later. Everybody busy digging in. Can see new airship going up at Imbros. It has not yet made an active trip. Prince George is firing with a heavy list in order to get long range. Probably firing at Chanak. September 16th and 17th. Each day the battleships, at odd intervals, fire at various targets on shore. First, a small hill rising from the high ground on the Turkish right, which we have named the Pimple, and on which Turkish batteries are in position. Next, on Anafarta and Burnt Hill, behind Chocolate Hill. Next, on the slopes of Seri Bear. Our batteries on shore occasionally fire off a few rounds. Owing, I suppose, to the fact that there are hills in front of us, the sound of guns firing is louder than it was at Hellas. When our 18-pounder batteries on shore fire, the
the noise of the report is very much like a door upstairs banging loudly on a windy day. I am getting much fitter and think it is because I managed to get a bathe now and again. There is a very good place where I bathe and often visit, not so very far from our dugout. It is a little cove, plentifully besprinkled with huge boulders and protected on all sides. We walk up the rugged slope opposite our dugout to the top of the cliff. Then there is a difficult descent down the sheer face of the cliff to the water's edge. It seems so odd to be on this little patch of rock where we seem to leave the war miles behind us. Then we hear it muttering and grumbling in the hills above and behind us. Sometimes, when least expected, a battleship looses off with a roar that shakes the crags above us. But we are safe, quite safe, as no shells can reach this spot. And so, in the midst almost of this welter of blood, disease, and death, quite light-heartedly we proceed to the most peaceful of pastimes, bathing. I go up to headquarters after dinner and enjoy the walk, feeling ready for bed when I return. End of section 16